So, Psalm 148. Let's hear God's word to us this evening. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights above. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his heavenly hosts. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens and you waters above the skies. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for at his command they were created, and he established them forever and ever. He issued a decree that will never pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures in all ocean depths, lightning and hail, snow and clouds, stormy winds that do his bidding. You mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, wild animals and all cattle, small creatures and flying birds, Kings of the earth and all nations, you princes and all rulers on earth, young men and women, old men and children. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His splendor is above the earth and the heavens, and he has raised up for his people a horn, the praise of all his faithful servants, of Israel, the people close to his heart. Praise the Lord. Let's pray together as we begin. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful to you for your word, and we pray that just as you caused it to be written here in this majestic psalm, we pray that you might also bless us with your spirit to receive it. We pray that you would draw near to us with each of the uh, individual circumstances that we bring, things that concern us, and as we lay those at your feet now, we pray that you would give us both attention to what the Bible says, but also minister to those circumstances and provide for us and feed us so that we might serve you and be a blessing to those who surround us in the week ahead. And we ask all these things for Jesus' sake. Amen. All right. So, our sermon this evening is a sermon about praise. It's a sermon about praising God, what it means to praise him. It's a sermon about praise as a universal obligation. A sermon showing us that every part of the created world owes thanks and honour to God as its maker and as its sustainer. And I hope it will help each one of us then find our place and continue to discover our place as praisers within that larger infrastructure that God's made. But also, this is going to be a sermon about how to read the Bible. It's going to be a kind of practical how-to guide. Because the psalm that we read turns out to be more than just a summons to praise. As we we go along, we're going to discover it's a summons to include one thing in particular, in our praises, even to enthrone that thing at the very center of our praises. And the way we're going to find out what that thing is, is by paying very careful attention to the way the psalmist writes. You see, what he gives us here is more than just a list of bullet points. It's more than just a kind of grab bag of facts about God and who he is designed to stimulate us to thankfulness and admiration The psalm is carefully structured to point us in one quite specific direction. And its message for us, the thing that it would have us take hold of and take home with us and integrate into our devotion in the week ahead, is carried by the structure of the psalm just as much as it's carried by the individual words on the page. So it's going to be a sermon about praise. It's going to be a sermon about how to read a psalm like this. And God willing, when we put those pieces together at the end, we're going to find that it's a sermon about Christ. You see, Christ is the destination 
that this psalm is ultimately going to point us towards. And it's my prayer that as we follow in the psalmist's footsteps, we'll find ourselves led to Christ, that we'll be given a new appreciation of who he is and his significance in the larger story that God is writing into our world. Okay? At least it was a well, well-timed microphone catastrophe just after my introduction. Good, okay. So let's start with the subject of this psalm. It doesn't actually take a genius to work out what the subject is, did it, as I read it? The subject is praise, and we can tell that just by scanning over the vocabulary. When you're reading a psalm like this, it's always good to look for repeated words, and that's a very rewarding process as you read this psalm, because 13 times in just 14 verses, the psalm talks about praise. And that same lesson is baked into the structure of the psalm. I wonder whether you noticed this as I read it. The psalm is divided into two major sections. If you look down in your Bibles, you'll see this. The first one runs from verse 1 to verse 6, and the second runs from verse 7 to verse 12. And their function in the larger whole is to subdivide the material into two major categories. The first section starts like this, praise the Lord from the heavens. And then it lists a whole load of things that inhabit the heavens. Angels, heavenly hosts, sun, moon, stars, and the waters above the skies. And then in verse 7, the second section starts in a similar way. Praise the Lord from the earth. And then we get another long list of things that inhabit the earth. So do you see then that this psalm is not just, it doesn't just say the word praise several times, but it's also constructed from praise. Praise from the heavens and then from the earth. And together, these two categories of praise make up a whole. They leave nothing out. So the structure leaves us in no doubt at all that praise is the subject that we're dealing with here. And did you notice also that the psalmist wraps his material in praise? The opening and closing lines of the psalm are exactly the same, summoning the hearers to praise the Lord. You might know that in the ancient world, topping and tailing a composition like this, a poem or prose, was actually one of the most common techniques that authors had to draw attention to their subject matter. In the days before uh, Microsoft Word and italics and highlighter pens and all the kind of things that we would use now, indented headings and that kind of thing to show what stuff is all about, this is one of the things that's most common. We even have a fancy word for it. We call it inclusio. So if you wanted to write a poem of appreciation to your wife on Valentine's Day, guys, I'm hoping that many of you did this. Um, in the ancient world, you begin with a theme statement, something like, my dearest wife, I'm so thankful for you, and then off you would go, and then you return to it at the end with your last line, my dearest wife, I'm so thankful for you, and in the middle between those brackets, you would spell your appreciation out, hopefully in appropriately poetic style. So that's what's happening here, from front to back, from bottom to top, the psalmist wants to talk to us about praising God. But it's also really clear that um, he has a particular purpose in doing this. He doesn't just want us as readers to know what praise is. He's not content simply to describe praise. He doesn't want us just to be able to appreciate praise, to be able to recognize it when we see it and maybe give it marks out of 10 for completeness or sincerity. The psalmist wants us, and he wants the whole created world with us, to do Praise. That's his purpose. This psalm is a summons to action. I said earlier on that there are 13 instances of the word praise 
in this psalm, it should also strike us that 12 of those 13 instances of the word are commands. I wonder whether you notice that. Praise the Lord from the heavens, our first big section begins. That's not a description of something the psalmist has observed, is it? It's not like Psalm 19 with its wonderful observation, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. When the, the psalmist kind of looks out and says, oh, this is something that I see in the world around me. No, this is a summons to the heavens, maybe even a challenge to the heavens, saying, come on, if you know what's good for you, give God the praise that is his due. Now, bizarrely, I think we find this easy to miss, actually, as Christians, easier to miss the more experienced with uh, faith we become. We hear the command to praise the Lord, and we respond by going into what you might call recitation mode. We come to church, and we sing a psalm like this, like we did right at the start, which is great. Or we read it in our devotional time, but then we think, okay, that's me done, because I've said the words, praise the Lord, kind of tick, job done. But that isn't what the psalmist has in mind at all, is it? When a tennis coach commands a player to hit the ball, it isn't sufficient for the player just to turn round and loudly repeat back the command, hit the ball. The correct response is to actually hit it. To hit it from their particular location on the court in a manner that's suited to their skills based on the situation in the game. And the same goes for us. The psalmist is commanding us to bring praises to God that are informed by our actual life situation. Yes, to take models of praise that are informed by the Bible, by all means, but to do that, making them our our own. I think this point becomes really obvious when we think about the range of audiences that this this psalm touches. It envisages different kinds of praise, doesn't it? According to uh, the different types of created being it mentions. So in verse 2, our first section kicks off with this summons to the angels to praise God. Now, we don't actually know very much about angelic praise. There are parts of the Bible that give us glimpses, Isaiah maybe, Revelation maybe, but we hardly get a comprehensive description. Whatever it involves, though, for angels to praise the Lord wholeheartedly, we can be sure that it's different from the kind of praise that shows up in our psalmist's second major section. So when he turns from the heavens to the earth in verse 7, the psalmist writes, Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures, and all you ocean depths. Now again, I don't have very much insight into what it looks like for whales or coral reefs or deep sea volcanoes to praise the Lord. But I think we can be sure that whatever it involves, it's different from what the angels do, right? I think this is not a great theological insight, but I take it that angels are not whales, And that whales are not angels. The psalm envisages every individual part of creation bringing the praise that's appropriate to its nature and experience before the Lord. So even right at the start here, there's there's a question for each of us, isn't there? What is our particular niche in this chorus of praise? What's our unique part in this larger composition? What evidence have we seen of God's faithfulness and goodness. What glimpses have we been given of his power and might in our lives? They may seem insignificant or partial. Certainly, if I think about my own experience, I'd rank it like that. And doubtless, that's true compared to the testimony of the angels or maybe many other Christians. But the point is, the overall symphony still won't be complete without them. 
The psalmist here is like a conductor in an orchestra, kind of scanning around all the different sections, summoning the the brass and the woodwind and the strings and uh, the percussion into the melody one by one. He's not expecting the oboe to sound like the double bass or the tuba to sound like the harp. And he certainly isn't expecting the musicians to kind of stand up and wave their instruments back at him in imitation of the baton. He's expecting each one to play the part marked out for them in the manner that reflects its own unique character. So the question for us, I guess, is what does that look like? Something to take away maybe and think about in your own Bible time this week. But there's more to this as soon as we start thinking about how the psalmist embeds that message in his text. We've already noticed that this summons to praise kind of encompasses two distinct realms here, haven't we? He summons praise from the heavens above and he also summons praise from the earth below and in our minds if you're like me I've got a very visual imagination you might be forming that picture and thinking to yourself okay here we go we've got the heavens kind of calling down to the earth from their vantage point narrating their particular experience of God and that's certainly something that the heavens do isn't it something that we see in the bible and then maybe we're imagining the earth calling up our praises Back to the heavens, speaking out our account of God's faithfulness and goodness. Again, that's something that we see in the Bible. And all of that is good and true. But that's not the picture that this psalm is creating. If you look down with me at verse 13 for a moment, you'll see as the psalmist draws the threads of his composition together, he's got quite a different kind of overall sketch of things in mind. Let them, he says, that is everything in creation, praise the name of the Lord. For his name alone is exalted in splendor. His splendor is above the heavens and the earth. So in the psalm, the picture that's being conjured is one in which praise is being called upward from both the realms that it addresses. The heavens and the earth alike look up to God and they give him the praise that is his due. And that picture, I think, clearly informs not just this psalm, but actually some of the other psalms that are placed around it. I don't know whether you're familiar with this idea, but uh, the Psalter, our book of Psalms, is much more intelligently constructed than we imagine. We tend to think of it as being like a telephone directory with kind of like, you know, things just in kind of random order, just because people are next to each other alphabetically in a good old phone book. It doesn't mean they know each other or they have anything to do with each other or they live in the same street. But that's not the way the Psalter's put together. And you can see that here as you look at the Psalms that are either side of Psalm 148, actually the two that are before it and the two that are after it. Notice that they all share the same theme. How can you tell? Well, just look at the beginning and the end, and you'll see it. Psalm 146 begins, praise the Lord, and it ends, praise the Lord. Psalm 147 begins, praise the Lord, and it ends, praise the Lord. Same thing for Psalm 149 and Psalm 150. That's inclusio again, right? That's the author's device used to tell us what the theme is. And in each one of these thematically united psalms, we see this striking feature that the heavens and the earth all look up to God as the object of their praise, wholly other from the world of their own experience. So in Psalm 146, if you scan back there, we learn that God is higher than the highest things of the earth. He's greater than princes, Psalm 146, verse 3. However mighty they are, they can't save, and death brings them down to the dust. But God is also higher than the heavens, higher not just in the sense that one rung of a ladder is higher than another, but higher in the sense that he's the maker of the ladder. 
He's totally different and distinct from it. So you could try maybe to place different components of the heavens, the sun and the stars, on some kind of ranking of glory. But the point that's going on here is that you couldn't place God on that spectrum. God isn't like a star or a planet. God made the stars and the planets. And so the psalmist summarizes things in Psalm 146, verse 6. God is the maker of the heaven and the earth, the sea, and everything in them. Absolutely distinct from everything else. And you get the same thing in Psalm 147. The earth addresses God as its provider. God supplies us with rain and uh, with all the other good things that we need, as Falco so helpfully reminded us in prayer just now. He rules over the weather. He provides food for animals as well as people. The whole thing is a picture of total dependence on God. But it's interesting that that isn't limited to the earthly sphere. That's also true of the heavens as well, where God overrules. God isn't just aware of the number of the stars. He determines it. He calls every single one of the billions of them by name. But even that doesn't quite do justice to the relationship that exists between God and these two realms, as we see it in the psalm that we read. See, for all of his exaltation... God is interested in the creative world beneath him. In fact, the lowlier each element is, the more interested in it he seems to be. So in Psalm 148, we're told that God is interested in angels and the heavenly hosts and the vast structures of the cosmos, galaxies and black holes and goodness knows what else. But the psalmist can't also resist telling us that God is interested in mountains and hills and the trees that grow on them and the birds that nest in them. He's interested in cattle, but also small creatures. He's interested in men and women, but also young uh, people and children. And that idea that though he made and sustains everything we will ever see, he has this tender individual concern for every part of his creation, that's fundamental to this summons to praise that we have in all five of these kind of united praise psalms. So in Psalm 146, God is the maker of the heavens and the earth, but he also notices and stoops to uphold the cause of the oppressed. Verse 7. God is high, high above all meaningful sources of comparison, but that doesn't stop him taking care of that which is low. That's why the psalmist urges his readers not to put their trust in princes in Psalm 146. They're too low, too weak, to really do anything about the needs of the people who depend on them. And then ironically, they're also too high, too conscious of their lofty status to really care about the people anyway. God is not like that. God does not have that problem. God is high enough to shape and change any of the circumstances that affect us. And yet he also comes and meets us in our need and draws near to us when we're confused and weak and afraid. God is exalted above the heavens and the earth, but he looks on even their smallest parts with tender kindness. See the same thing even more dramatically in Psalm 147. In verse 3, we hear about God's compassion and his restorative touch reaching out to the brokenhearted. He binds up their wounds, we're told. And that's really intimate. You know, it, it isn't possible to perceive, let alone to do anything about a broken heart from some kind of remote watchtower in the sky, is it? in order to actually minister to the brokenhearted, that depends on relationship, doesn't it? It depends on intimate knowledge of what's going on within someone, something that maybe they can't even speak or articulate. But then do you notice, in the very next verse, in that Psalm 147, the psalmist then pulls out to the widest possible angle 
and we find that God is still powerfully active, placing stars and galaxies with deliberation and individual care. So the point that these psalms make as a group is striking, isn't it? God is worthy of praise. That's where we started, Psalm 148. He's worthy of praise because he's exalted over every category of existence, things in heaven and things on earth, all look up to him and depend on him. But we don't praise him just because of his exalted status. We don't praise God just because he's great. We praise him because of the way he handles exaltation. We praise him because of what he does with it. God is infinitely high. He reaches out, though, and moves towards that which is low. He moves towards us. And the lower we perceive ourselves to be, the more confident of it we can become. And there's more here, of course, if we read forward in this group of united psalms, to Psalm 149 and 150. Here we're summoned to praise God as communities, not just as individuals. Praise the Lord in the assembly of his faithful people, says Psalm 149, verse 1. Praise the Lord with trumpets and harps and lyres and strings and pipes and resounding cymbals. I've seen some one-man bands in the high street in Oxford, um, but I've never seen anyone attempting to play all those instruments at the same time. It's because it's impossible. Um, this is uh, presupposing collective praise, isn't it? So what we're being summoned to here is not just praise as a kind of counting of our own individual blessings one by one, although that's a good thing. This is an encouragement to us as churches to ask ourselves, what's our united testimony to God's goodness and faithfulness in our experience? How has he answered our prayers? How has he provided for our needs? And it turns out that voice too is a necessary component of this symphony of praise that our psalm is calling for. If we don't find a way to express those notes of thankfulness together as a body, no one else will. No one other than you guys knows the particular ways in which he's blessed you and drawn near to you as a church. If you don't speak it back to God, that part of the orchestra would just be silent. And as we go on through these psalms, we find that praise also has other functions. Striking that in Psalm 149 verse 6, praise is described as a weapon. May the praise of God be in their mouths and a double-edged sword in their hands to inflict vengeance on the nations and punishment on the peoples. The psalmist seems to be thinking now about praise as a kind of battle song. God's people raising their voices in thankfulness to him as they step out to defend themselves and punish the nations that have oppose them and I think we can see why that works if praise as we've seen is a reminder of total dependence on God then this is the way that we should fight isn't it whatever kind of fighting God calls us to praise is our battle song when we experience suffering the world expects our faith to crumble when difficulties come doesn't it perhaps we expect that too but the testimony of God's people throughout history is that praise sustains and reorients us even when we don't know where God is or what he's doing. When we doubt, when we fear that our faith will fail, praise can be the first step back on the road to spiritual health. And that, that sounds crazy, doesn't it? You know, how can you praise a God if you're struggling to believe in him? If you're reaching out for him and kind of, you can't seem to perceive where he is. But I think faith is like physical fitness in this respect. If you're unfit, you don't wait to feel fit before you start running, do you? And if you do, you'll never get fit. 
You start running as a way to get fit. And in the same way, we don't praise God because we feel spiritually healthy already. We praise him because we know that's the only way to get spiritually healthy, right? Praise is a weapon in our hands to help us tackle doubt and fear. But the place I want to take us as we kind of make our turn towards the finish here in this sermon is not so much to the psalms surrounding Psalm 148 and all the helpful ways that they kind of contextualize this summons to praise that we read, as it is to the direction of travel in the psalm itself. I said at the start that the, the psalmist embeds in his message, in the structure of what he writes, uh, this kind of, this point of this point to which he wants to drive us. Um, and now I think we're, we're in a position to see that. Look back with me at the seemingly innocuous verses that stand right at the end of this after he's broken praise down into these two vast kind of categories, praise from the heavens and praise from the earth. Our psalmist says this, let them praise the name of the Lord for his name alone is exalted. His splendor is above the earth and the heavens and he has raised up for his people a horn, the praise of all his faithful servants of Israel, the people close to his heart. Praise the Lord. There are all kinds of interesting things going on under the surface here. I've already said that this section concludes the psalmist's argument, and you can see that actually very graphically in the way um, that he talks about God here. wonder whether you noticed as I read through the, the reading at the start that when the psalmist brings these two great categories before us and introduces all the different component parts of this praise he wants uh, to see being brought, that he, he, li- he lists them all with a catch-all expression. So he says, praise him all his angels. Praise him all his heavenly hosts. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you great sea creatures and all ocean depths. Praise him, you mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, wild animals and all cattle. Praise him, kings of the earth and all nations, you princes and all rulers on earth. Praise him, all his faithful servants. Striking, isn't it? Ten times, the psalmist reminds us that his instructions here are being issued to subjects who exist within these larger kind of general classes. The call isn't just to one angel, but to all angels. It's not just to one nation, but to all nations. And it's even more striking then when we come to these concluding verses and we find that there's one exception to that rule. In the psalm addressed otherwise exclusively to plural groups of things, there is one solitary singular that then praise the name of the Lord for he alone is exalted. That's the theme we've seen all along, isn't it? God alone is alone. God alone stands above it all. However high up that ladder of existence you go from the grains of sand to the angels in heaven, all of it looks up to one source and point of orientation. God alone is worthy of the praise of everything. But there's also something else here at the end of the storm that stands out, something that doesn't conform to the pattern established beforehand, but branches out into new territory The final two verses of the psalm introduce a new reason for praise. They tell us that God has raised up for his people a horn. And this horn too is to function as the object of their adoration. And that's super weird, actually, if you think about it as you're reading along. What on earth is he talking about? Even the word horn, I think, needs some contextualization here. This would have made a lot of sense if we were living in first millennium or maybe borderline first, second millennium. Israel, but that's not where we live today. So we need to do a bit of time travel. To us, it just sounds kind of strange and unfamiliar. So let's take a whistle-stop tour now of other places where horns crop up in the Psalms, just so we get a sense of what's going on here in the minds of uh, the original readers. 
If you jump back, you don't have to follow all these links, but if you jump back to Psalm 18, verse 2, horns appear alongside a host of other images that are designed to capture the strength of God and the protection that he provides for us. So listen to this kind of, um, uh, the rat-a-tat-tat of the, of the, uh, the, um, uh, the praise gun as, as the psalmist kind of shoots off all of these amazing ways in which uh, God is a defense and a protection for his people. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. That's three. The Lord is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. David composed that psalm after the whole saga of Saul. You remember going out with his army, pursuing David and trying to kill him. And um, we can really imagine that scene, can't we, as we, as we reflect on this verse we just read. David fleeing through the desert with nothing but the landscape to conceal him. But actually he discovers as he goes that God is fortress enough. That God is as good for him as an impregnable castle. And that horn image fits very naturally into that storyline for the, the Hebrew uh, way of thought. Conjuring up maybe the picture of like a mighty horned bull standing at David's defense. More likely though, maybe a mighty horn blowing, announcing that the cavalry is coming. That however weak David looks, he's not in fact alone, but supported by this vast power, the power of God coming to his age. But horn imagery also gets used in a variety of other ways. Horns are used as a metaphor for human strength elsewhere in the Psalms. So in Psalm 75, the psalmist warns his audience not to lift up their horns against heaven. This is kind of like, you know, uh, don't um, make yourself look incredibly kind of uh, proud and mighty in your own eyes. As humans, I think we find it tempting, don't we, to put confidence in ourselves. We're tempted to lift up our horns against the difficulties that we face, even maybe against the God who made us. And say, I have the power I need to conquer this. I am the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul. I don't need God to come riding to the rescue. I've got this myself. That's the culture we live in. That's the culture where all of the students that we minister among in Oxford, that's what they're swimming in. A culture of self-sufficiency, of depending on or maybe despairing of the natural gifts and opportunities that we've been given to make the future give us what we want. But with God, there is a legitimate alternative place for confidence. So if you spin on to Psalm 112, the author talks about the horn of the righteous being lifted high in honor. When God is our helper, when he becomes our righteousness... There is freedom from fear. And wonderfully, actually, when you read that psalm, you find that it doesn't let out in this horrible kind of arrogant independence. It actually becomes a basis for generosity. When God's people lift up their horns, the result is this outward-looking compassion and provision for their neighbor. Psalm 112, verse 9, they freely scatter their gifts to the poor. That's a pretty interesting vision. They do for others what God has done for them. God has drawn near to them in their need, God has been their fortress when they had nowhere else to go. And now they pass that blessing on to the people around them. And then all of it comes to a head, and this is complete coincidence as far as I know, but Falco, there may be some genius behind this. But the psalm that we just sung, Psalm 132, is kind of like the climax of the psalm's horn imagery. Um, it looks forward to the coming of God's anointed king. Um, and it tells us that this horn um, isn't just something which is a characteristic of God, isn't just some kind of abstract element of his, uh, an abstract attribute of his character, that the horn is actually a somebody, that the horn is this Messiah for whom God's people are waiting. 
So it reminds us in Psalm 132, verse 11, that God swore an oath to David that one of his descendants would reign on his throne forever and ever. And then verses 17 and 18, it gives us some fascinating details about this messianic figure. I will make a horn grow for David, it says, and set up a lamp for my anointed one. I will clothe his enemies with shame, but his head will be adorned with a radiant crown. And that's the underlying idea in the psalm that we read. When the psalmist tells us that God has raised up a horn for his people, the praise of all his faithful servants, we looked at that and thought, how could that possibly be? He's speaking about the fulfillment of that messianic story. He's speaking about the long-awaited unveiling of the one who is the fortress that his people need, who is the cavalry riding over the hill to our aid, who is the source of transforming power that blesses us so that we can then bless the world. It's the son of David who will reign on his throne forever and ever. It's Jesus. But the way he writes us, writes it, also gives us something more. And this is our Bible reading lesson, hopefully, coming into land. Just think where all this fits in the structure that the psalmist has created. The psalm is structured, remember, in two major sections, addressing two distinct realms. Praises someone from the heavens and then from the earth. And together, that summons exhausts all possible sources of praise. Under those two headings, the psalmist gives us a comprehensive description of creation in its entirety. There isn't anywhere else that you can look. The heavens and the earth encompass every created thing, and all of it is summoned to praise the Lord. But that structure also tells us something about God, doesn't it? It doesn't just tell us that all creation gives praise. It tells us that God is the only rightful recipient of praise. The heavens and the earth are summoned to praise him because God alone is worthy. God alone is above the heavens and the earth and nothing else can be. So what does that tell us about this horn in verse 14? After the psalmist's grand sweeping survey of all creation, identifying all of it as a fitting source of praise and not the fitting object to praise, he turns to this horn to this long-expected anointed one in the line of David, and he says, seemingly as the climax of the whole, that he is the praise of all his faithful people. How can that be? Isn't the whole shape of the psalm designed to provide just one answer? The only way the horn can be the praise of all God's faithful people is if he's God. So do you see now what our psalmist is communicating through the way he writes? He's telling us that the horn, when he comes, will be above the great creatures of the sea and all ocean depths. He'll be above the mountains and the wild animals, above the kings and nations of the earth, above the sun and the moon and all the shining stars, above the very angels and the host of heaven itself. They are all givers of praise, but he's the recipient. He will be the legitimate object of creation's worship because somehow he stands outside, beyond, and before it all. God himself in human form, high enough to speak the universe into existence with a word, but low enough to care for broken hearts and to sustain the humble. And all of that drives us irresistibly back to the description of the horn in Psalm 132, I think. Once we've realized what's going on here, that this mighty one who stoops to save us, this all-powerful one who knows our every need is who's in focus. 
Psalm 132 verse 18 told us that his enemies will be clothed with shame. And that's true, isn't it? That's an indication of his height, his worth. Even when his people are pursued and overwhelmingly outnumbered, like David was, Christ remains in charge and the forces ranged against us will be humbled. See the same thing in the very next verse. His head will be adorned with a radiant crown. There's a reason why the very last chapter in the Bible calls Jesus the bright morning star. That's his height, again, his inherent brilliance, shining out superior even to the most exalted inhabitants of the heavens. But as we remember how high he is, the portrait of God we've got in front of us here in Psalm 148 reminds us that he was also willing to stoop down so low. Indeed, the wonder of the gospel is that the one whose enemies will be clothed with shame was clothed with shame himself for their sake. The one who will wear the radiant crown for all eternity was crowned with thorns that radiated the reality of his self-sacrificial love in that moment, just as much as the bright rays of his power and joy and wisdom will shine out in victory for all the ages to come. The heavens and the earth unite in lifting their praise upward to God, to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, not just because they alone are worthy, but because when human beings defied him and blamed him for the wreckage that they themselves had caused, God raised up for his people a horn, the praise of all his faithful servants, who took the lowest possible place that our horns might be lifted high in righteousness and in worship and in service to our neighbours for all eternity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for this amazing psalm. The Old Testament is full of these glimpses, full of these hints that you were going to do something just completely mind-boggling in the end. You give us pictures, people, places, images, the nation of Israel all leading towards some kind of grand consummation. And yet written into it all, as we found here in the details of this psalm, is the promise that it won't just be a David, it won't just be a Jerusalem, it won't just be a nation of Israel that you restore, but that you yourself will one day enter the drama, that you yourself will one day step onto the stage that you have made, and that the one who is the legitimate object of the praise of the endless stars and galaxies of the heavens um, will come and stoop so low in order to redeem every child, in order to Uh, reach out to even the tiniest details of this creation. We wonder that that is who you are and worship you. We lift to you our praise. We respond to that summons. And we lift back to you not just a generic praise the Lord, but for each of our own experience of your goodness. We give you our thanks. In Jesus' name. Amen.